So we are now at the return of the king. We've laid the foundation for how and why Jesus is returning. He is coming to destroy this present civilization that has uh, completed its cycle of destruction, of degeneracy. This again, this is why chapter 17 and chapter 18 dealt with the re-emergence re of Babel. Babel was the beginning of this present civilization, and it is the end of this present civilization. She is the mother of all harlots, the mother of uh, degeneracy in all of the nations, the nations which were created to preserve man on this earth until Christ was ready to judge the earth as a whole. So chapter 19 is the transition from the present world into the world to come. When King Jesus returns to this earth, he is uh, not the meek and mild man that he was when he left. Although I don't really like that uh, description of him for when he was here, because there were times where he could be quite a firebrand. Um, but comparatively, um, he was not terrifying to behold uh, when he was here on earth. He came as a lamb and he is returning as a lion. His eyes are a flame of fire. This was how John chose to begin the book. This was something that struck him about Christ's appearance when he appeared to him on Patmos. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. This was a terrifying vision. John fell down on his face as if he were dead. These flames of fire uh, come back when uh, he writes the letter to the church of Thyatira. It says, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that, that your deeds of late are greater than the first. So these eyes, he is able to judge accurately. He is able to, uh, to judge beyond the outward appearance. These eyes that are a flame of fire speak of his ability to judge. On his head are many diadems. This speaks of his uh, power and his authority. Now these are diadems, crowns, not uh, Stephanos which are victor's crowns or wreaths um, that would be awarded to the victor in an Olympic game. These are crowns of royalty. We saw these as well in Revelation 12.3. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now here, the diadems are able to be numbered. There's just seven of them, which we might say is excessive anyways. But it appears that uh, John doesn't even take the time to count how many diadems Christ is wearing. Um, his head has many crowns on it. Revelation 13, 1. Uh, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast come up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns are ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. So this is Satan wearing crowns and uh, Satan's uh, false messiah wearing crowns. 
they take rulership up over this earth, uh, but it's a finite rulership. Uh, Christ, when he comes, has an infinite rulership over this earth, and the earth actually belongs to him. Back in Daniel chapter 7, which is really a source chapter for most of uh, what is going on here in these final chapters, the return of the Lord, he writes, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His crowns are not like the crowns of Satan or the Antichrist. They are his, and they have been given to him by the Ancient of Days. Uh, now, you remember back in chapter 4, there's 24 elders wearing crowns, and they cast these crowns before the feet uh, of, of the Lord. Uh, some interpret these crowns as the crowns that he is wearing, but these crowns did not come from 24 elders. They came directly from the Ancient of Days, directly from God. These are not Stephanos crowns that he's wearing. Again, these are uh, diadema crowns, diadems. Daniel 7.21, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the high, highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Again, this is why the Lord is returning. The beast is waging war with the holy ones, the saints of God. The Ancient of Days judges what's going on on earth, and he, uh, the time arrives, the saints take possession of the kingdom. God declares enough. Uh, he's handing over the kingdom to his son, and his son will strip the kingdom from the clutches of the false messiah and of Satan. <clears throat> uh, Daniel 7.13. Oops, we did that one already. Revelation 19.12b, uh, he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Now, there is an inordinate amount of pages spent in commentaries trying to figure out what this name is. My only question is, did they not read the verse? He has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. So unless they are Jesus, they will not know this name. And we are not meant to know this name. And in fact, we probably never will ever have this name revealed to us. Revelation 2.7 has a similar um, image. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now this when we see this given to the churches, here I believe this was uh, Smyrna, when this is given to the churches, we understand the intimacy between the receiver and the giver, that this is something uh, that the believer receives as an intimate relationship between them and God. This name, which Jesus will have, that no one will know except himself, he has received from God. 
This is intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. And we don't enter in between that intimacy, just like no other believer is going to enter in between our intimacy with God. We are directly linked to him. And though we have fellowship in the body, one with another, um, there are intimate things between us and God that remain between us and God. And that goes all the more for the son of God, uh, Jesus, the son of man. Revelation 19, 13, uh, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, the Greek word for robe here is specifically the same word used for a Roman general. This is not a robe like you put on when you come out of the bath, but this is a robe that one would wear to go into war. And his name is called the word of God. Now, the robe dipped with blood, some think that it is Christ's blood that it is dipped with. Um, and they say that because most times when blood is uh, mentioned in conjunction with Jesus, um, in fact, every time except for here, I believe, um, in Revelation, it does have to do with his, uh, with the blood that he shed to pay for our sins. In Revelation 5, 9, uh, they sang a new song. Uh, that's the 24 elders and the uh, four living creatures, I believe. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for purpose clause. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 7, 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now there's an issue. Robes washed in the blood of the lamb are white, not red, but I won't press that point too much. No, this in fact, contextually does not, or is not the blood of Christ that uh, his robe is dipped in. Um, his own robe is not dipped in his own blood. Uh, but, uh, this is the blood of his enemies. So in one sense, um, Jesus relation with blood has to do with salvation in another Jesus in relation to blood has to do with judgment. He came for salvation the first time and he came for judgment the second time, though there will still be salvation of those who have already been preserved, but those who have not gotten on the ark of the cross, uh, will not be preserved. In Isaiah 63, uh, we see how his blood, uh, or how his robe got dipped in blood. Isaiah 63, 2 reads, Why is your apparel red, and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? The response, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. And his name is called the Word of God. Now, interestingly, this, uh, this goes all the way back to uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, John is the only one to use this title for God, and he uses this, uh, although I, in 1 John 1, 4, I, I don't think it's actually referring to Jesus. 
Um, I think it's referring to the message, but um, he uses this sort of phrase in every, uh, or at least in his three major works, the Gospel of John, the Epistle of John, and Revelation, this title comes up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in the Gospel of John, the uh, Word of God comes giving life, a new kind of life, a spiritual life that fallen man did not possess. In Genesis 1, uh, which we understand through the New Testament, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was the agent of creation. When life was first created and put on this earth, it came by the word of God. Here, however, in Revelation, we get the end of life. We get judgment on life. We get death coming by the one whose name is the word of God. He has absolute, sovereign, perfect control over life. He is the word of God that created life, that gave the opportunity for new life through faith in him by his blood. And those who refuse his blood to wash them, they'll be washed in their own blood, and it will not cleanse them. All of this done by the same God, the word of God. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Second Thessalonians 2, 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The same God, the only difference is in men. God does not change, but man does. How we are related to him depends on how he acts towards us, because his nature does not change. Those who receive the righteousness of Christ, Isaiah 64, those who take on his righteousness rather than trying to produce their own righteousness, those will be preserved. But those who try to put on their own righteousness or throw off righteousness altogether, those will be slain with the breath of his mouth at his coming. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Notice this is the word of God. It can destroy just as it can create. Isaiah 11.4 again. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide the fa with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now one, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So not only has he created with his word, but the word of God came for a very specific purpose to reveal God. And this was a major function of Christ during his earthly ministry. He revealed who God is, specifically the righteousness of God. Uh, we might think of the, um, the Sermon on the Mount, 
Matthew 5 through 8, where Jesus correctly interprets against the Pharisees' wrong interpretation of God's righteousness. Righteousness didn't come by means of the law, not by keeping the law, but the law's purpose was to show man their inability to be righteous, and that they needed a righteousness that was external to them, that was God, showing them their need for a savior because God is perfect, God is light, and in that him there is no darkness at all. So Jesus is the creator of life physical, of life spiritual. He is the taker away of that life. He is the judge, but he is also the one who has provided the means of salvation and shown why the judgment is righteous by revealing God. Revelation 19.14, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So here, for the first time, we shift from Jesus being the only actor, the only character, um, here to now an army that is following him. Now let's look at Isaiah 63.2 again. He says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. Now we see when we look here at Christ's actual return, and in every other revelation of his return, we see people are with him. At least um, some agents beyond himself are present with him. What he is alone in doing is treading the wine press. He and he alone can judge righteously, and he and he alone will enact this judgment. We will not come back with him fighting. We will come back observing. Jude 14, 15, it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all of the ungod convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him now opposite of ungodly is godly and a definition of godly would be righteous the un or the righteous comes to judge the unrighteous now i do want you to uh notice something interesting here. Jude, in about, uh, can't remember where I dated him, about 75 AD or so, uh, before the book of Revelation was written, though, still in the first century towards the end, um, he is writing about a prophecy that Enoch gave seven centuries or seven generations from Adam prior to the end of the previous civilization, prior to the flood judgment. In fact, when he's looking around at the world that is getting worse and worse by the corruption of man, he looks forward to judgment. But rather than seeing the first judgment that is to come, the preview of the, the uh, moving from the present world into the world to come, uh, he does not, or sorry, rather than the preview of his own civilization ending and moving into the present civilization, he sees the one after that. He sees the Lord coming with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all. 
Okay, now traditionally this one is interpreted as Jesus uh, returning at the second coming. I do think uh, that the present scriptures in uh, Revelation 11 through 21 is what Jude is looking forward to, but there is a possibility that he is looking forward to the final squashing of uh, all rebellion, which is at the end of the kingdom uh, period when he comes against the, the rebellion that Satan brings at the end of the kingdom period. Uh, but I'm still going to go with the uh, Revelation 11 interpretation when he's coming with many thousands of his holy ones. This is what Jude is looking forward to. He's looking forward to the judgment that's still yet to come because it exceeds the judgment of the flood. But notice as well, there are people coming together with him. Second Thessalonians 1, 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Those who have not believed, uh, retribution is dealt out to them because they get the just end to their own decisions. Um, to take on their own righteousness rather than Christ's, and they can't produce righteousness. So here we have many thousands of his holy ones. Jude speaking before Israel ever existed, before Israel was ever a thought in any man's mind, speaking well before the church ever existed or before it was ever a thought in man's mind, though both were already thoughts in God's mind. He calls them holy ones or saints. This is simply an unspecified um, term that means set aside or set apart ones. Second Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul speaking to the church, interestingly, cites a group of angels present with him. Matthew 16.27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So in Matthew 16, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, tells them that angels are coming back with him. Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, now that is, uh, again, looking forward to the same period of judgment. All of these verses are looking at these, uh, the day that the Lord returns, and the civilization comes to an end by cleaning out all unbelievers. The day that the ark door shut, grace ended, and Noah, by shutting that door or by getting in the ark and having the door shut behind him, condemned the world because grace was over. Grace, the day of grace, had ended. No one could be saved who was not saved already after that door was closed. Matthew 24, 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds 
of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. So here's the breakdown of interpretation. Who are these? Get back to it. Who is the armies which are in heaven? Some say the angels, because every time his second coming is mentioned, whenever a group is mentioned accompanying him, it is usually angels. Uh, some say it is the redeemed, which excludes angels, interestingly enough, as an interpretation. This would mean armies that are in heaven here does not mean angels at all, but it means all who have been saved, which would be Israel, the church, and any old or, or any. Uh, pre-Israel believers, all tribulation saints that have died, that would be all the redeemed. The other option is just Israel or just the church. Uh, so we're going to look at the next line then and see if we can narrow down this interpretation. They are clothed in fine linen. This fine linen is white and clean. And I think honestly, just in John's progress of how he is describing uh, or how he continues to uh, bring up these terms i think this at least at this point in revelation narrows this down perfectly and finitely to the church um, this is the church that is in view here now importantly that does not exclude other groups this does not say and the only ones who returned with him were the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. But John is for some reason choosing to focus on this one group. There are angels present as well, but these are not angels. These are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. What was it? Six verses previous, he gave us the interpretation of who these are. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. This is the church. Angels will be present with him, but they have an activity to do. They take part by gathering together Israel, both the mortals on the earth and the resurrected Israel. They have the task of collecting all the unrighteousness and gathering them for judgment, and they take part in the execution of that judgment. So these angels have tasks that they are doing when the Lord returns, but there is this one group that comes to watch, this one group that comes behind him. They don't come with shields. They don't come with swords. They don't come with armor. They come clothed in Christ's righteousness, fine linen, white and clean, and those and Christ's righteousness, having its right end in our lives, produces good works. So this is Christ's bride that comes behind him, not to join in the fight, not to trod the winepress with him. This is not a warrior bride by any means. She is a bride for whom the victory has already been won. And we have the promise that once we... Uh, once we are no longer present in our mortal bodies, we will never be apart from him again. And this is why we 
follow him like a dog on a leash when he comes back to this earth, not to fulfill any duty or task uh, at this judgment, but because we have the promise that we will never be apart from him again. And that includes when he returns to this earth in judgment. So we, the church, follow him on white horses. Now, some say this must be, uh, we, we should spiritualize this whole passage. It's all allegorical uh, because horses aren't in heaven. And I don't think they've ever read the Old Testament. Like, legit, that was uh, in a commentary that I read this week. Um, there is a problem with this imagery because it doesn't fit um, scripture. Well, it does. It fits scripture perfectly. Not only do we see horses, heavenly horses that are not earthly horses, um, present in scripture. We've already seen them in Revelation uh, chapter 9. We saw an army of demonic horses. We know that there are horses beyond the natural. But not only that, if there weren't horses present anywhere else, who created horses to begin with? God did. And if he wants to send us back on horses, he can create horses to send us back. But they're already created. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. So we see Horses and a chariot from heaven came to rapture <coughs> Elijah into heaven. Just five chapters later, when the Arameans uh, came up against Israel and Elisha was advising the king of Israel, we see this event. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is very similar to how John saw his vision, where we saw it right at the beginning, um, Revelation 19, verse 11, where the heavens were opened. This is what it means when the heavens are opened, the unseen realm is revealed. There, are, there was already an army surrounded there that was going to aid in the physical battle against the Arameans. God was protecting Israel. And here, with the heavens opened, with the unseen revealed, uh, we see that the church, the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb, is returning on heavenly horses uh, to be ever-present with Christ, the bridegroom. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress, the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
we've seen this. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. In Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. Notice we haven't quoted Revelation chapter 1 uh, very often in the last few chapters, uh, but here, when we get to the climax of the book, John starts to draw again from chapter 1, although it's actually probably happening the other way around, where John is writing this book, and what stuck in his mind was the events of chapter 19. They stuck in his mind so vividly that when he went to write chapter 1, chapter 19 is still present in his head, and he's relating everything that he saw in that vision um, to what Christ looked like when he came to him on Patmos. Revelation 2.12, uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword say this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now Pergamum, uh, we usually forget about this church. Uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, these ones kind of get lost in the fold because we're focused on Smyrna, the persecuted church, or the martyred church, Philadelphia, the happy church, um, Ephesus, the loveless church, and uh, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Uh, Pergamum actually gets the harshest uh, judgment of all of these churches. Laodicea, um, we usually think of as the bad one. Uh, they're all in pretty bad shape. Um, here. It's the end of the first century. Um, all of the apostles, except for John, are gone. The savage wolves that Paul told them are going to enter into the flock, entered into the flock. Uh, Peter said the same thing. They're coming. Jude said the same thing. Jude said they're already here. John, when he got there, he said they're already here. They're teaching false doctrine. They're leading people astray. Uh, when we get here to the church of Pergamum, we see that the apostolic witness that was left um, it's still there. It's still present. There are people who are faithful, who are holding to it, uh, but there are people being led astray. And Pergamum gets this very harsh warning. And in fact, they are even told that they will be judged and even killed. Uh, when Christ comes and uh, gives this message to these churches back in 95 AD, um, to the church of Pergamum, he gave the same imagery, this two-edged sword that he is coming to finally end all unrighteousness with. And he told them that he is going to temporarily judge them. That means judge them physically in this physical time and space. This is not going to take away their salvation, but they might lose their lives. They might be punished to death uh, because of the way that they're acting in the faith, in the church. So the sharp two-edged sword is an image of judgment. It is an image of Christ putting an end to unrighteousness either here in the body of Pergamum or uh, an end to all unrighteousness at the end of this civilization. Uh, see, the, this comes uh, a sharp sword from his mouth so that with it he may strike down the nations. Again, Isaiah 11.4 is really the key verse on this. He will strike the earth with a rod from his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 again. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth 
and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Just like God speaks into existence, so his spoken judgment affects the judgment. Uh, a sword is something that we are given as an image so that we can comprehend um, the manner in which this is going to happen. So we can picture it because otherwise we might not fully comprehend what exactly this means to bring to an end by appearance of his coming to slay with the breath of his mouth. Isaiah 11.4 makes that parallel. He will strike the earth with a rod from his mouth with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Um, the physical presentation of the speaking of his word will be as if a knife or a sword sliced through them. His judgment uh, spoken is affected. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, this is important because this points toward the final culmination of all world history. There was an issue back in Genesis chapter 3 where God's purpose for this earth was not realized. Do I have this here yet? Not yet. Until that purpose is realized, which is having a man ruling over this earth, this earth cannot pass away. That is why God needed to preserve mortal man so that Jesus could be born through the seed or uh, yeah, through the seed of the woman uh, so that Jesus could be born so that he could provide salvation to mankind because we need a kinsman redeemer. Uh, only a man can redeem man, but that man has to be perfect. Um, so God had to preserve the previous or the present civilization until Jesus could be born. And now he is preserving it specifically so that he can rule over mortal man, over this world as God created it. And so Genesis 49.10, that scepter has passed from Adam to Seth to, uh, to Noah to Shem, Arpachshad, down to uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now to Judah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, that is peace, until peace comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Revelation 5, 3 through 5, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. That book, remember the seven-sealed scroll, was the title deed to this earth, the owner's um, certificate. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, that tribe from which the scepter would never depart. The lion who is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the scepter went from Judah to David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. The one who is worthy to rule the earth with a rod of iron because he is righteous, because he serves God, because he is perfect man and perfect God. Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, we often quote this psalm, but we don't often realize that this is a prophecy of the return of the Lord. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together 
this is a prophecy of Armageddon. Against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He has put his king, the God of, or the king of God's choosing, has been installed in this earth. And that is why he is going to laugh at them trying to come against him. The armies at Armageddon will amass themselves against God, as if they could take rulership over this earth once God has placed his king over it. Revelation 2.26, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. This is something promised specifically to the church to members of the church, that the nations that enter into the next civilization, into the kingdom, we will have a part in ruling over those nations. Because we have been made righteous together with Christ, because we share in his nature through regeneration um, and through the new birth, uh, we have been training for reigning. That is what we do as Christians on this earth, growing up in Christ's likeness, where one day we will be like him when we see him. The very purpose is so that he can have vice roys, so that he can have um, those who have been trained in responsibility to understand what it means to reign righteously. So we will be a part of that ruling with an iron scepter. That is what we are training for in the church. And we do so not by our own actions, but by dependence on God. See, that was the issue. Adam was created to be a king over this earth, and he failed not because he didn't do enough, but because he did too much. Because he did not depend on God, instead he depended on himself. He depended on his flesh. So we train for reigning, not by going out and getting involved in social programs or giving all of our money to the poor or doing this or doing that or doing this. If doing is part of the equation, we're probably doing it wrong. Instead, it should be depending. All that we do, everything that we do, whatever it is we are called to do, we do so by depending on him. This is training for reigning. Uh, Psalm 45, three through five, gird your sword on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp and the peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Revelation 19.15, uh, part C, I guess here. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now this winepress um, is the same winepress he's treading in Isaiah 63, 
we've read verse two uh, and three already, but we, uh, the prophecy actually draws on verses one through six, which says, uh, who is the one or who is this who comes from Edom? I remember this is where Christ returns. This is Petra, um, the physical place of salvation for the mortals who will survive the tribulation period, just like Noah and his family survived physically the judgment of God on the ark. Israel will survive physically the judgments of God and the wrath of man in Petra. God will protect them there, and he will return to them there. So who is the one who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from Basra. Basra is the location of Petra. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who tread in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. This is the end, the consummation, and that is why his grace has ended and his judgment has begun. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Isaiah 34 looks at the same event. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains here and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off their stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them, and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood, and their dust become greasy with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Now that is the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, looking forward and seeing the same thing that John sees in Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. 
And then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had a, the sharp sickle saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This is the distance between Petra and Jerusalem, where the armies that had originally gathered in Armageddon would move through Jerusalem, siege Jerusalem, that's Zechariah 12, and then move on down to Petra to try to take out the remnant of Israel. Because if they destroy Israel, they do not, um, they, they, they take away the one who will call back Jesus, the Messiah. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Now, I hope you guys are starting to get the point with all of these passages that I'm citing from, from the Psalms, from uh, the Torah, from the histories, uh, from the prophets, especially from the New Testament. This exact moment in history is the focus of more scripture than the cross because the cross begins what is finished here redemption comes to its conclusion at this point where we are face to face with the lord yes but he is also trampled down righteousness he has taken the rule over this earth history does not finish until this event takes place all of history has looked forward to this point and the cross was a means of getting there. The cross to us for our personal salvation stands above all things. And it is the most glorious thing that Christ has done to this point. But in fulfilling the purpose of God on this earth, in ruling over this earth perfectly on God's behalf, he finishes, uh, he finishes his duty, his work, his task, and brings the ultimate glory to God. The cross is a part of the whole. It finishes our salvation, but the finished salvation is not fully revealed until he returns. Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, before we move on, uh, one more statement on what I was just saying. Um, the return of Christ is mentioned in some way, or this this event is mentioned in every single book of the Bible except for the book of Jonah. Um, so that, that's how prominent it is. Uh, Revelation 19, 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, now this first on his robe and on his thigh, I think is better translated on his robe, even on his thigh. Um, his robe draped over his thigh. This is the area of his robe where this name is written. It's not written in both places. 
it's written on the robe that he is wearing. He's wearing it like the um, identification of his rank um, on, on his military garments. That name that is written is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, now this, um, this replaces his title here uh, that was given to him in the Gospels. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This is King of all kings and Lord of all lords. This is the ultimate supreme king. Um, this title is given to God the Father in Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. In Daniel 2, 47, a Gentile king recognized the supremacy of the king of Israel over all other kings of the earth and over all other gods, which, um, which men of the earth rule, uh, so much so that um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king here who recognizes this, even drafts his own, uh, his own letter to every king that would come in succession in the time of the Gentiles, that the king of Israel, the God of Israel, must be worshipped by every nation that comes out of Babylon, and we are one of those. Uh, he is the supreme king um, over all Gentile kings, that is Nebuchadnezzar, and he says uh, all earthly kings, all Gentile kings should ascribe glory to the God of Israel. Uh, but he says here to Daniel, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. In 1 Timothy 6, 13, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. He is the only one capable, uh, physically and powerfully, uh, to be the king over all of this earth. This is the fourth title that Christ is given at this time of his return. Uh, he is called the faithful and true in verse 11, speaking to his integrity and his power, his ability to do what he um, has said or his uh, bringing to completion. His intimacy with God the Father, uh, that unbreakable union that they have, and his supremacy. Uh, the Word of God, he is the creator and he is the revealer. He's also the judge, I should have put in there. The king of kings and the Lord of lords, he is the sovereign over this world and he is the ruler over this world. In fact, as I mentioned already, he is the one that creation points to. He was the agent of creation and he is also the purpose of creation. Genesis 1.26, when God speaking among the Godhead gives his purpose statement for creation. He says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
when God created man, he created them in his own image because he knew that someday he would need to enter into the body of man. He created it analogous to himself so that he could be expressed in that body, so that he could come as the Christ, so that he could come uh, as the incarnate God and fulfill what man could not do, which is to rule over creation on God's behalf for his glory. And Christ, Jesus, will do that, and he will bring creation, history, to a close in doing that and fulfill every single purpose of God. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is what everything points to. Philippians 2.6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Music.